Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Well, welcome January 5th, first Sunday, first Lord's Day in 2020. I pray that's a good year for you. I'm praying that God will have many wonderful things in store for us. And for those things that might be difficult, that he will give us the strength to endure and the hope to continue. We're in Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80, as we're going to close out chapter 1 of Father's Joy. As you're turning there, and you might be there again, and again, by the way, I want to encourage you to continue to read through Luke. I believe there's 24 chapters, so that's about, if you do one each uh, five days of the week, you'll get through very quickly, I believe, or six Maybe it's six a week or so you'll get through there uh, through the month. So I would encourage you to read through it every month as we go through. But let me ask you this question as we just begin. What brings you the most joy in life? What brings you the most joy in life? What makes you the most happiest? What is it that keeps you going? Maybe it's work, maybe career, maybe it's your vocation. Maybe it's the hobbies that you like to do, woodworking, woodbuilding, something of that nature. Maybe it's fishing or hunting. It's probably those and many more good things like good food or, or good friends or long-distance relatives. Those things bring many of us joy. Yeah, for many of us, it's our children. They are a source of joy. One of my favorite songs is, uh, singers, I should say, is Steve Green. And one of the songs that he sings is, Children are a treasure from the Lord. It starts, halls rings with echoes of laughter long after they've come and gone. For the memory of a tiny face and playful grin still brings a smile, reminding us again that children are a treasure from the Lord. He goes on in the song singing about the time when they are just by the cradle and the time that we uh, uh, taught them their first song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me. So it sings about those bright and trusting eyes and as they grow and they surprise us with their personalities and so on and so forth. There's even a little bit of laughter about when they start their school days and not letting them begin to date until they're in their Uh, 20s or so. I get that. But he ends with this, homes ring with echoes of laughter long after they've come and gone. And just knowing that our children really love the Lord is a faithful parent's passions and reward. Isn't that what you truly want for your children? Is that they too will love the Lord and follow you? You know, that's my prayer for Landon and Nolan as I see them. And one of the reasons why we believe it's important for them to be in the worship because we believe that we as parents, one of the responses we have is to teach them how to worship. Yeah, color and draw and keep them busy, yeah. But many times, children's programs are designed just to keep them out of our hair and keep it quiet. Just knowing that our children really love the Lord is a faithful parent's passion and reward. Yes, children are a treasure from the Lord. Last week we read of Mary's joyful reunion with her Aunt Elizabeth. The reason for their reunion was to compare notes uh, concerning their, both of their unexpected encounters with an angel that had promised both of them special, unique sons 
of promise. Their children would change the world literally. This reunion served to both confirm and affirm Mary's role as the human mother of the Messiah. And her joyous, joy, or joyous celebration of worship that we read last week serves as an example for all of us today to the good news of a Savior who's born to redeem God's children from the curse of sin and death. In today's passage, as we consider Luke 1, 57 through 80, Luke is going to conclude the narrative of John the Baptist's birth As we've seen, those have been parallel accounts with that of Mary and her son. As we're going to come, it's going to conclude the narrative of John the Baptist's birth. And also, it's going to share the Father's joyous celebration of worship. But before we begin, let's read Luke chapter 1. And we're just going to read 57 through 66, just to kind of get an opening. It'll be here on the monitor, but again, I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. In verse 57, Luke writes, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, no surprise. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. It happens every day. And on the eighth day, they came in to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, but none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his fathers inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Remember, he is, he is mute. He has been struck because of his doubt. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, speaking of Zechariah, his mouth was open and his tongue loosed. And he spoke blessings God and he spoke a blessing God and verse 65 and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with them father for those of us who are parents we have asked this question what then will this child be We rejoice at the sound. We were just rejoicing at the sound and the the words and the pictures of Dustin and Sarah bringing in little Zephaniah. What a wonderful little son. Thank you so much. And I know they're not here anymore, but for so many of us, they're still part of our heart and our family. And Father, you've blessed this church with with children, and I know you're going to bless even further. And Father, so we can understand a father or a mother's joy at the birth of a child. But Father, help us as we wrestle with this portion of Scripture of what it means to us, this birth of John the Baptist, a strange young man who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. And then also this song of praise of Zechariah. And Father, open our hearts, bring down, then diminish any distraction, keep us here rooted in our seats and our hearts attentive as our ears are opened and our eyes are looking forward to the Spirit's work, and may we respond obediently to his call. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Here in this passage, we read of two unexpected parents receiving their promised son with joy and obedience, Elizabeth and Zechariah. This passage concludes Luke's narrative of the birth of John the Baptist, that promised messenger who would prepare the way of the Messiah. 
This serves to give us certainty of John the Baptist's miraculous origins, his fulfillment of a 400-year-old prophecy, and his purpose in God's plan of redemption. I did want to point out a few interesting points, though, as we look at this in our observation of this orderly account of the origins of John the Baptist first. These are not on the screen. Just, you don't have to take notes, but just something to understand as we look at this passage as a whole. It seems that in verse 38, that Zechariah and Elizabeth had kept her pregnancy quiet, as we see. And when the relatives heard, heard what? That she had given birth, and that the Lord has shown great mercy, they rejoiced. This passage seems to indicate they'd, that they had heard about her pregnancy after the birth. Their rejoicing is due to Yahweh's opening up of Elizabeth's womb at an advanced age and giving them a son. This is a blessing that they had most likely had given up any hope of ever expecting. Secondly, according to Jewish custom, they bring John to be circumcised on the eighth day. One theologian remarks that on the eighth day, in accord with God's commandment throughout Scripture to the Jewish children, it had become customary to name a child at circumcision. The ritual would bring family and friends together who, in this case, pressured the parents to name the baby after the father. This was a, a particular, this was a, something that would, was common, probably intending this as a gesture of respect to Zachariah. However, the parents were not going to take of that. Thirdly, because what we see is that their obedience is evident. As contrary to custom, they do not name him after the father or any of the other male relatives. Instead, they follow the instructions of an angel who told them in Luke chapter 1 verse 13 that you shall call his name John. So we see the obedience of both Zechariah and Elizabeth. Fourthly, we read that after nine months of forced silence due to his doubting of the angel's proclamation, that Zechariah's voice returns when he agrees with his wife to name the child John. Luke writes that immediately Zechariah was able to speak in his words and praise of, were a praise and worship of God. Now also what's not given here is it almost seems like not, maybe that the angel not only struck him uh, uh, not able to speak, but he may not be able to hear as we see as they're making signals to them as he's trying to communicate. Whether he could hear or not, we're not told, but it almost seems like maybe he was struck both deaf and mute. But fifthly, as we just look at this passage of scripture, the narrative concludes by describing the response of the relatives and neighbors to the birth of John the Baptist and Zachariah's healing, that it becomes the talk of the town as they wondered about the uniqueness of John and God's plan for him. It seems like this might have followed John throughout his life. Who is he? Why was he born in this way? What is this about John? And, and maybe he was an odd child after a while, as he, he seems to be kind of a loner, and we find he winds up in the desert later in his life. But what child, what type of child would this be? Now, each week, as you and I consider a passage of Scripture, I, I usually follow a, a typical pattern. I, I give an observation, and this is, by the way, this is how we all should look at the Scripture and do it, is, is we observe the Scripture. As you read, you observe, and you look at the different facts and things that are, are most obvious. What is this passage talking about? Who is it written to? Who's writing it? So on and so forth. Who's the characters, the settings, and so forth. And then we spend some time interpreting it and then applying it. 
Well, today I plan on doing so as well with just a little bit of a twist. Now become apparent as we get to it. You see, it's important for us not only to observe what the passage says, but it's important for you and I to know and understand what each passage means. That's really important when we come to it. And I want to concur here and add on to what Landon was sharing earlier. Small groups, that's what we do. On Friday night, we get together and we're going to take Luke chapter 1, uh, 57 through 80, and we're going, to, we're going to look at it more fully. We want to understand what it means. And I want to take time to do that. It's so important. So in your reading, again, you're to interpret. But here's the key. Young people, if you're taking notes, write this down. The scripture is not for private interpretation. Now, that's probably a big phrase for you to write down. So parents, help them with this either now or later is that the Bible does not mean what you think it means. What is, isn't there, a, what is it, that Princess Pride? That word does not mean what I think you think it means. It's not for private attention. And many small groups or many Bible studies go astray when we say, well, what does this passage mean to you? Your answer, by the way, is whatever it meant to the Holy Spirit and to the author. You see, Scripture is not up to private invitation, but to the author's interpretation. In this case, the author is the Holy Spirit and what he's communicating and revealing to us through the human author, Luke. So it has one meaning. The passage is is trying to reveal and communicate something to us that's important. And as we learn from the opening message, Luke is writing that you and I may have certainty about the life of Christ. Now, in this case, Luke is confirming the origin, the calling, the plan, and the purposes that John the Baptist will play in the redemption story or chapter of the Bible story. John is going to play an integral part, so we're being introduced, we're understanding his origin, we understand what God's calling in his life, his plan and purpose. So chapter 1 has done that for us. Now it's just confirmed, yes, he was born. The miraculous birth of John here, what we're going to see, the miraculous birth of John is going to prompt his father to praise and worship Yahweh. And that's important as we continue through this. So in here, here's two points that I want to make for interpretation. What are we to understand about this passage? And this is on the monitor. Number one is that this passage, Zechariah praises God for the Messiah who brings deliverance. He praises God for the Messiah who brings deliverance. Look with me at verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has, and you can underline this in your Bible, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, this is not speaking about John. John is not of the house of David. He is a Levite. The house of David is from Judah. This will be Jesus. But he's saying here, he's praising because he understands John and will have a role. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us, 
that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. So when the people say, what then will this child be? As your child is born, you say, what type of child will this be? In the case of John, we find out is that he's going to be the preparer because he praises God for the Messiah who brings deliverance. Yahweh's faithfulness is on full display as he fulfills his promise to Israel, to David and to the prophets of old. He praises God for his deliverance, his mercy, and his remembrance of his people that has suffered much under centuries of Gentile rule. This promise is not goes not only back to Abraham, though he ends with Abraham, but it also goes back, as you and I know, to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You see, Zechariah understands that his son is just the first player to enter into the redemption chapter, that he will prepare the way. And so he's praising God for his faithfulness for the Messiah that brings deliverance. He understands that this fulfilled promise includes that you and I must submit and serve God in holiness and righteousness without any fear of condemnation and wrath. Oh, what a way to live. We spoke about that earlier during communion. Can we pray that way? Can you live your life without fear of condemnation? Can you live your life in righteous holiness knowing that you and I cannot do that outside of Christ, who gives us our righteousness, who makes us holy. That's where confession comes in and understanding that there's no condemnation. That's a father's joy. He knows his son's role in this chapter. The second thing that we see is that is for Zechariah's joy, a father's joy. It's shown as he praises God for the significant role of their son in the redemption. His son will play a role. Look, read with me silently as I go to verse 76. And he says, And you, child, speaking of his own, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sin. And because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our faith, our feet, excuse me, into the way of peace. Zechariah understood completely that his son is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Where Yahweh promises, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way for before me. You see, he understands that his son will play a unique role in proclaiming, as we see, the knowledge of salvation that will bring forth forgiveness and reconciliation with God. He understands that this comes not because of Zechariah or any good from Elizabeth or even from the good of the child, but from the mercy of God. And he celebrates that good news that the Messiah will come as a sunrise that drives away the darkness and the shadows that it's cast in creation. This Messiah will bring the long-awaited peace that comes from the righteous king. And so that's where I wanted to stop with my interpretation for the moment. 
For as we see here, Zechariah understands exactly who his child is. And here is where my message changed this week. As I began preparing for this message this past Monday, I thought I had a pretty good idea of where it was going, what it meant, and how I was going to apply it. But something special happened this week that dramatically changed the way I viewed this message. As most of you know, our son Jacob was married this past Wednesday on New Year's Day. It was a pleasant surprise to many of us, as I'm sure it was to you. During the wedding, as I was watching the festivities and the expressions on Jake and Lorenda's face and demeanor, I was struck by how meaningful this moment was. Let me explain. Dawn and I were introduced to Jacob on June 11, 1991. It was a Tuesday morning. He was a wonderful addition to our family. Brandon was three. Jacob was very sensitive and had a wonderful personality. He was so different than Brandon. Not that Brandon's not sensitive or wonderful personality, but he was so much different. I remember even Brandon at first being very shy and not very sure what to do with his brother. I finally brought him in to see his mom and to see the see Jacob, the baby. And we had asked him, well, can we bring? He had a Raggedy Ann doll that someone had made for him, and he just loved this thing. And I said, well, can we put this in, in Jacob's crib and just let him you know he's in the hospital? And Brandon finally said yes and placed it in there. This may be the longest part of my message. Well, during the pregnancy and after he was born, Dawn and I wondered, as we did with Brandon, and as we would with Emily, what would he be like? We asked the same questions as the neighbors of Zachariah. We wondered, what would he be like? What will he do? How tall will he get? That was important to me. What would God's plan for him be? And how might Dawn and I help him to grow? It was on that day that Dawn and I began to pray for his wife. We did not know her name. We did not even know if she was born yet. We didn't know what she would look like or be like, but we were praying for her praying that God would give our son a loving wife that loved God. And we've done this with all of our children. But we've been praying them for them for years. We trusted God. Now, as our children grew older, we realized that we needed a new beginning. Things were very tough for us in the city that we were living in and the ministry we were at. It was difficult financially. It was difficult ministry-wise. God opened the door, and so we said, you know, we, we need a new beginning for our family, and so we're going to move to California. So like the Beverly Hillbillies, we loaded up our truck and moved. Not to Beverly, to Beverly Hills, we moved to Anaheim, and we served up in Brea. That was in 2001. However, we thought that we were moving to California so that we could minister at a new church, start a new beginning, Yet, as we're finding out today is Wednesday that God moved us to California because that's where our children's spouses were. We never thought that, did we? And God answered our prayers by bringing both Jake and Lorinda together in a very providential way. Not at church, not through some social group that they were, but just a general way that people meet each other through online dating. We've been praying for Lorinda for 28 years. Commander Zachariah and Elizabeth had done for years, praying for a son, giving up hope that that would ever happen. Well, watching them together was touching, to say the least. And I considered this passage unbelievable. This passage comes up as I'm sitting there watching them at the reception. And I couldn't, finally, I finally couldn't hold my joy in seeing them together. 
praying for them for 28 years, that marriage was more than six months in the making or three months in the making. It was 28 years in the making. For truth, it was before the foundations of the earth. Finally, I couldn't hold any more, and I finally walked over to them. They didn't let me pref- uh, 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 officiate the wedding, which is probably a good idea. I wasn't going to ask for the microphone, so I just went and I stood before them, knelt down before their table, and I just looked at Lorinda and Jacob, and I shared my heart. It was much more emotional than this. I just knelt and I shared with them the story that I just shared with you, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit more detail. And I shared with them a parent's joy of the faithfulness of a loving, good father in heaven. Now, please understand, I am not equating their marriage with the arrival of John the Baptist. But what I am saying is that I fully understand the joy of a father when God sovereignly provides for his children. They understood his purpose. Maybe not all, but they understood a purpose. And and as you and I are here today as parents, we need to understand that, or as prospective parents, as grandparents, we need to be praying for our children. We need to be praying for all facets of their lives. I'm sure many of you can understand and would ditto my emotions and thoughts with your own children as you look back and you see how God has worked in their lives and brought them together. Now, you may not like God's provision for them, whether it's a spouse or so forth and so forth, but yet we understand that that is God's gifting to us. Now, as I contemplated their marriage vows, that was one thing. It was nice to hear someone, and I, I got to hear someone different give the marriage vows. I was very pleased with those vows. It was once again pressed on me that the coming together of a man and a woman in marriage is unique and wonderful picture of the redemption chapter. God the Father has prepared a bride for his son, Jesus. And that, and that groom, Jesus, sacrificed for his bride as a husband is to his wife. And the wife is to love her husband as the bride is to love Jesus. We are the chosen people of God. But we are also are the bride of Christ. And one day, you and I must understand that God is coming for Christ's bride. And he will hand us over to him. God is faithful to his promises. The wedding this week reminded me that as we look back to redemption accomplished, what Christ did for us, that redemption is still also in the future. Yes, we have been forgiven and saved from our sins, but the the power of the Trinity is working in our lives even at this very moment. But you and I still embrace the hope of Christ's return when salvation is fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation. Now, when Luke first introduced us to Zachariah and Elizabeth, they had no hope of ever having a son. Though it's not given if you and I were to write between the lines of Luke, you and I would probably see a man and a wife advanced in years, Zachariah finishing out his duties, his life. He only worked till 60. That's how long a, a, a Levite priest would, priest would serve. Their lifespan was probably not much more than that. 
their life was coming to an end. Their hope of having a child was gone. They most likely had been struggling for some time with the thought that the Yahweh, that the God that they served and they loved, that they ministered to, had not blessed them with children. Yet maybe they also had finally come to peace. But what you and I see as we look at the story of John the Baptist is that God was not done with them. Zachariah's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Remember, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to light the candles. For 40 years, he would serve. And only one time, he would light the candle and give the benediction. And here he was, late in that 40 years, he had never gotten the opportunity. Finally, the lot is given to him. And with joy, he approaches that. This is the highlight of his career. There's probably not much for him to live for afterwards. He was not looking forward to his children getting older. He was not looking forward to his child getting married or to having grandchildren in the, in the, in the older years of their life. I'm going to light these candles and I get the benediction. But at that very moment, the highlight of his life, God interrupts him with something much greater than lighting the candles in the temple and giving a benediction. A benediction, by the way, he never gives until nine months later. As he lights the candle, the Gabriel stands before him. And he says, you think this is something? I've got something better for you. I am going to give you a son. And not just a son, but I'm going to give you a special son. One who will prepare the way of the, of the Messiah. Zechariah, filled with joy, but yet also doubt, walks outside and croaks, is not able to give the benediction. This passage that you and I just read of Zechariah is actually called the benediction. The benediction that he could not give nine months ago is finally given at the joy of a father who sees and receives his son of promise. The joy of a father is evident as you and I read this passage as he welcomes his son into the world with the knowledge that God has anointed him with a wonderful, important task. Now, is not what that what we want for our children Don't you and I want the best for our children? Something wonderful? Don't you and I have a supernatural trust that God will use him for his purposes? During Jake's wedding, I was reminded of David's song in Psalms 139, 15 through 17. It's here on the the monitor, and it's why I can know that God planned them together. David says, my frame was not hidden from you, speaking of God. When I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes, in verse 16, saw my unformed substance. And here we see now the sovereignty and providential attributes of God. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me, when yet there was none of them. You and I must trust a God who has written our life for us. The days that were appointed for you and I. The life that was assigned to us. Now, since they were older in age, they probably did not get to see John grow up into adulthood. They probably did not get to witness his ministry of repent for the time of salvation is at hand. 
But at this moment in life, Luke captures a snapshot of their joy that was so evident and now it's recorded for all ages to read and rejoice with them. Yes, you and I can have certainty about the origins, the calling, the plan, and purpose of John the Baptist. He was a real person who lived in a real land with a real ministry with a very large impact. But as you and I come to verse 80, Luke closes this part of the narrative by writing, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. The Lord is preparing him. What you and I need to understand about this passage, how you and I can interpret it in one sentence, is that God is faithful in his promises, and he provides all that is needed for the redemption of of his children. Let me give it again. What can you and I gather from this is that God is faithful in his promises and he provides all that is needed for the redemption of his children. Let me bring it now to the close. What do you need and how do you and I apply such things to our lives? Number one, first, you and I must remember that all good things come from the Father. All good things. I love how Luke writes that they, that the people, the neighbors and the relatives learned that her child, her pregnancy was how the Lord had shown great mercy to her. You and I must never forget that everything that you and I enjoy and experience in this life comes as a gift from God. James reminds us in, in James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift is from above coming from the Father of lights. This truth should cause us to rejoice not only for ourselves, but also for those that God bless when we are not blessed. We must remember that all good things come from the Father. Secondly, we must trust in the providence of the Father. We must trust in the providence of the Father. I know I have just beaten this uh, uh, down, but I need us to get, to get it. You see, God's promises never fail. Just as he was faithful to bring about the ministry of the Redeemer through the ministry of John. God will bring all things to pass in our lives and in our, child, in our children. You and I must never despair or doubt God's good providence. Whatever life he assigned us to, whatever gifts, we must trust in the providence of the Father. Even when he withholds a blessing for time. We must trust in the providence of God. And then thirdly and lastly, you and I must rejoice in the plan of the Father. As a parent, it can be difficult raising children. We are worried that we might mess up and ruin their lives, right? We are worried that we might make the wrong decision or prevent them from reaching their potential. You and I find ourselves of making the same mistake as every parent before us. We think that they are, we are their savior. And we try to prevent anything bad from happening. We try to save them. We try to do all these things. We want to make everything okay. And that's understandable. But yet, we must rejoice in the plan of the Father, in the good and the bad. You and I must trust God that God will accomplish his plan and their purpose for their lives. Let's consider John for a moment. This is not part of our message. 
And again, Zechariah and Elizabeth probably did not know this part of the story. But John would lose his ministry. John would lose his freedom. John would lose all of his disciples to Jesus. And lastly, John would lose his head and his life. So all that was gained was lost by the pettiness of a woman and a young child and a king with no backbone. The joy of a father accepts the bad and the good. Could you imagine what his parents would have thought about John's life if they were alive to witness all that God had planned for them? They might have questioned, why did you give him to us, Father, if this is all that you're going to do? Let me ask you this. Are you ready to give your children over to the Father's will? Are you ready to do so even if it costs, comes at the cost of martyrdom, of persecution? Are you willing to give your child over to that? Let me also share with you who might be mourning this morning because God has not granted you children or grandchildren or maybe a spouse or wife. Do not despair over God's sovereign will or his providence this morning. Embrace God's sovereign will and his promise, even in the hard, difficult times. Pray the prayer of Hannah. Pray the prayer of Isaac. Find peace in the here and now. Minister as faithful servants to the Lord of all creation in whatever way that God has assigned you to. But let us remember all these wonderful words as we close, found in Psalms 139, as we continue in that wonderful chapter in verse 17 and 18. Let us remember how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Let us, with joy as a father, be thankful for that all that the Father has given us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as the worship team comes on up, a little bit different message as we conclude Luke chapter 1. But we see a father's joy in that his son will be used by God. And you and I must understand that our children, ourselves, may not have such an impact in the world, but we understand that God, good providence and faithfulness will always be evident and bountiful. Father, we just come before you. Encourage us with these words. Help us to be faithful and trust and embrace your goodness and your providence. Father, help us to, to understand, if not to understand, but at least to accept those things that are difficult in life when the blessings do not come. When we find ourselves enduring moments of silence and quiet, let us never doubt or despair that you love us and that your plan of redemption continues even to this day. Father, we pray that you would use us in that plan. Let us hold to that truth. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, 
or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.